0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's open up to John chapter three. We're going to pick up at verse twenty-two and stand for the reading of God's word. John three twenty-two through thirty-six. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Anon near Salim because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations as we Study this passage, and as it is preached, I pray that you would bless, uh, bless the words of my mouth. Bless us with minds that are able to focus on your word, and to be alert that, we'd be, that we would even be watchful and praying as we listen. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. And so we spent a number of weeks in the first part of John 3 looking at this dialogue that was going on between Nicodemus, the Pharisee, and Jesus. And um, we leave that conversation between Nicodemus and follow him and his disciples as they enter into the land of Judea. Notice that the first verse of our passage says that this very simply, Jesus was spending time with them. He was spending time with them, and then it says, and baptizing. So an immediate application right off the bat for this one, I'd like to draw out of that first statement is that Christians spend time with one another. Christians should spend time with one another. You are not being a good Christian if you are by yourself all the time and not with your brothers and sisters. Jesus spent time with his disciples. He traveled with them, he ate with them, he taught them, he, uh, he engaged in ministry with them, and that was all for the training and the building up, the ongoing strength of those disciples. But if you close yourself off from where discipleship training goes on, which is the church, if you close yourself off from the church and God's people, especially those Members of your local church and their collective efforts, you will wither. You'll wither. Uh, Jesus is not with us bodily, right? But his spirit, but by his spirit, we are joined to one another as we are united in Christ, right? It may be a pain for you to get your children ready to go and make the drive to uh, church function, but if you Uh, consistently choose to go your own route, you will wither in the faith. I've been a pastor for 20 years. I've seen it happen time and time and time again. Um, uh, The strongest Christians are those who know they are weak and need constant building up. And so they just get this stuff. They're just weak, right? But they're the strong ones. And the weakest are those who think they are strong and so they can skip the triple B, they can skip the women's Bible studies and and the fellowship meals and the worship services and, and pretty much all that's left of them is they're a name on a roll and they have no vital life in the body. And that's terrible. Christians hang together. Christians hang out together. You know, uh, Jesus spent time with his disciples. That's what he did. I uh, just like the sweetness of the simplicity of that phrase there, you know? He spent time with them. Oh, yeah, and baptized, right? Uh, as for that statement about Jesus baptizing, it does not mean that Jesus baptized. <laughs> How's that for a statement? It does not mean that Jesus baptized. Jesus did not do baptisms, okay? Okay. His disciples did, but he did not. How do I know that? Well, look at the beginning of chapter 4. There, like verse 2, I believe. Um, There, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. Um, he left Judea. So our verse is attributing the work of the disciples, and this is a beautiful thing too, it's attributing the work of the disciples to Jesus, right? What Christ's followers do is and should be attributed to Christ, which is why sin is all the more disastrous, because when we sin, we are still representing Christ as Christians, And our friends and our neighbors then who see it rightfully reach the conclusion that, that well, that must be how Christ acts. And that's terrible. Right? In, in specifically, we could also say that the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which are administered by pastors, is Jesus' own work. It's Jesus at work in the body. Anyway, no more on that. Jesus, uh, had Jesus' disciples baptized. So the main part of the text that we're looking at this morning has to do, again, with John the Baptist. We're back to thinking about John the Baptist. He was in those first couple of chapters, the first chapter of John, and now we're back to the forerunner. John is continuing to perform his baptisms, Uh, perhaps because Jesus is now on the scene. These are no longer baptisms of repentance, but they're baptisms into Jesus' name. Uh, The same as the baptisms that Jesus' disciples are performing at this time. I I don't know. Um, John's able to do this work because, as the text says, Herod hasn't yet put him into jail. He's headed there. His time is coming, but for now, he's out in the wilderness performing these baptisms. Along comes a Jew who begins to argue with John's men, John's disciples, about purification. Uh, we don't get much much we we don't get much information about what is being disputed, but I think we can infer from the context what is being debated. The, the The general topic is purification, purity. I think this is the argument that's going on. Is John or Jesus baptisms more purifying? John or Jesus, which one, you know, this Jew's coming out and he maybe he's being snarky and he's just trying to pick a fight? Um, which, one's, you know, which one will purify me more? The one that John's doing now or, or Jesus up the road? Which one's better? Ryle argues that the Jews were probably taunting John's disciples with the decline of their master's popularity. Along comes this Jew and he goes to John the Baptist and tells him that everyone's going after Jesus, his baptisms must be more purifying. His men are baptizing too, and so why are you even doing what you're doing? Aren't you going to uh, stick up for yourself, John? Your numbers are falling. So the question that's being disputed may be presented as purification, but I think what is going on here is that the Jew is trying to provoke John the Baptist. He's trying to get under his skin. Why would he do that? Well, why do siblings provoke one another? Right why do you provoke your husband? Why why do you provoke your coworkers? Well because we're selfish. We like drama. We like a good fight. It's pathetic, right? We enjoy taking our frustrations out on others. So, you know, how often do we take the opportunity not to bring clarity into a situation but we enter in just to muddy the waters. Just throw a wrench into the works. Jesus has his followers, John has his followers, and this Jew probably doesn't like the fact that anyone is going after either one of them. Rather than pursuing the truth, finding out what these baptisms mean in the first place, he's simply going to enjoy throwing a wrench into the work. And we do this, we do this, we ought not do this. Now notice what's going on here, the Jewish... Man comes to John's disciples, brings up the question of purification, and it is the disciples of John who then go back to John and say the next phrase in the verse, in the, in the passage. It's the disciples of John who are now saying this, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, speaking of, of Jesus, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. I mean, clearly they've been stirred up. They're offended for their man, John. Right? Oh, everybody's going after him. Yeah, you testify to him. We know you've got some sort of relationship with him, but everybody's going after him. They've been tripped up by this Jewish man and are now getting jealous. Think of this. They're getting jealous for a man over God. Calvin says the expression which they use, all men come to Christ, is the language of envious persons and proceeds from sinful ambition, for they are afraid that the crowd will immediately forsake their master. They're afraid that that their guy is not going to have the people. In one sense, it's endearing. They're loyal, they're expressing loyalty to their man, but loyalty to a man above God is always foolishness it's disastrous or as calvin puts it it's sinful ambition and john now will spend the rest of this passage correcting his men rest of the passage is john the baptist answer to this jews dilemma right whose works are greater your works or jesus works whose baptism is purer? yours or jesus who has the most followers you you or jesus who is first who is second right you or jesus does it bother you that your lines for baptism are one-tenth the size of the lines for jesus baptism does that bother you you know and the answer as we have seen already in chapter 1 verse 15 chapter 1 verse 27 is always the same from john the baptist he knows his place he knows his place The answer from John's mouth is always this, Jesus far outranks me. He far outranks me. Jesus is to me what the earth is to a single grain of sand. John testified about him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I for he existed before me. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not unworthy to to untie. So John knows that Jesus is God, that he is the one who made him, that he existed before even the worlds began. John knows that he is not worthy to perform even the most menial tasks for, for John, untying his footwear. Because Jesus is very God of very God. So, when presented with this temptation to become a rival with Jesus, that's what he's, and that that would be a temptation for John the Baptist, right? Are you ever tempted to be a rival with somebody else? You ever envious? When John the Baptist is tempted to become a rival with Jesus, he does not waver for a second. This is the final testimony of John before he dies. I mean, we don't receive other words from him. Once again, John the Baptist exalts Jesus Christ. He doesn't waver. Now, there's some some principles here that I've pulled from what John says in, in his answer to his disciples. His answer to his disciples' envy. First, God raises up and lowers men. God raises people up and he lowers people down. And it's his prerogative, right? A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven, says John. You can't be anything unless, that, unless God does it. Ryle writes, If one faithful minister's popularity wanes while another's popularity and influence over men's hearts increases, the thing is of God and we must submit to his appointment." I have no control over who comes after me and who goes after Jesus. God has control, and after all, given who I am and who Jesus is, this is all very good that it would happen, right? Um, what a help that is to us pastors who get so jealous of one another. Pastors. Right? We get together at Presbytery and talk about how many people are on our rolls, what size our budget is. And what sophisticated new members have joined? Et cetera, et cetera. And then we go away from those conversations, sizing ourselves and others up. right, Boasting in our accomplishments and rejoicing in our brother's failures. It's what we do. It's terrible. John the Baptist, in regard to Jesus' growing popularity, says that these matters, the success of a man's ministry, is due to God. To to jealously diminish it, then, could be to kick against God himself and to kick against his blessing. Now, obviously, that a church's membership role grows is not the only or even a good measure of the blessings of God. Right, megachurches have grown to astonishing sizes without the word of God being present in any respect. So don't hear what I'm not saying. Much of what we would call success is an abomination to God and not indicative of his blessing. We have to judge with right judgment, right? In the case of John, the rising popularity of Jesus was good, it was so good. It was good and the corresponding diminishment of his own popularity was good too. Both were of God. That's the first thing he said. It's this is of God. He's telling his disciples this is of God. Second, you're not God. There's a principle for you. You're not God. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. That's what John says. Do we even need to be reminded of this fact that we are not God, that we are not the Christ, that we are not the master of our own destinies? Of course we need to be reminded of that, right? You are not God. You are his creature. You are completely dependent upon God if you think you have an existence independent of God in any respect, well, then you think you're God. You don't need to know what he thinks because you play by your own rules. You have written your own scripture through your experience, through the years in your own mind. And in the end you expect that you will save yourself, right? That's foolishness. We'll see how it goes for you when you stand before God on the last day. Third, your highest joy should be should come as a result of seeing Christ honored. Your highest joy should be Christ honored. John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. Ryle explains what is going on in this verse. Let me share it with you. He writes, the bride in the verse signifies the whole company of believers. The lamb's wife, that's the whole company of believers, the lamb's wife. The bridegroom is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The friend of the bridegroom means John the Baptist and all other faithful ministers of Christ. According to the marriage custom of the Jews, there were certain persons called the bridegroom's friends, who were the means of communication between him and the bride before the marriage. Their duty simply was to set forward and promote the bridegroom's interest and to remove all obstacles as far as possible to a speedy union of the, the husband and wife. To accomplish this end and promote a thoroughly good understanding between the bride and the bridegroom was their sole office. If they, say the bridegroom's, if they see the bridegroom's um, suit, right, his, his, his going after this woman prospering, and at last see him received favorably and gladly by the bride, well, their end has been accomplished and their work is done, right? They they saw this union come together and they rejoice and their work is done. So in other words, John has accomplished his goal, which was to make sure the bridegroom was happy. He's accomplished that goal. He did not at all object to the attention going to Uh, the Savior of the world. That was his whole task was to draw people, draw the world's attention to that. Now that he sees it happening, he's thrilled. He's happy. He's done his work. He's been the forerunner of the Lord. He's done it. He's happy. He sees the consummation of the ages coming. Now, are you like John the Baptist in this respect when you see others honored for their hard work? When you see others walking in godliness, when you see others walking in faith, do you praise God? Do you praise God when you see others prospering? Or do you fall into self-pity and envy? Do you fall into self-pity and envy like I do? Do you explain away other people's acts of faith by picking them apart? Oh, sure, they've been fruitful and multiplied, but they don't really care for all those children. They couldn't possibly love them. You know, we pick we pick apart people's faithfulness like that. Can they possibly educate that undisciplined brood? John the Baptist could have gone down that road, and while moping about his diminishing popularity, he could have picked apart the Son of God's work. Uh, We should not do that. When we see Christ honored by others, when we see faith exercised by others, we should rejoice that Christ is at work in this world, that Christ is at work in them, that Christ is honored by them. So don't let envy blind you to God's work in others. John the Baptist resisted that temptation. Fourth, always be willing to decrease. Decrease. Always be willing to decrease. John's own disciples thought he ought to make a stink about Jesus' ascent. They thought he ought to assert his excellence. He was, after all, a prophet raised up by God. They saw the diminishing crowds as demeaning to their man. John the Baptist, on the other hand, pushed back such temptations and explained to them what must happen. The Son of God must increase, I must decrease. You know, for a time, John was the center of attention. He was the man. He was the one that God wanted everybody's eyes on. For a time, that was John. He was the main act. Now he was the opening band and Jesus was the main act. Right and as it should be, John was a mere man. Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, that's what John had been saying. For him to assert himself at this point would just would have been the re- most ridiculous hypocrisy. But it takes real godliness to know when to step back. Right, it takes real godliness to know when to step aside, when to pass the torch, when to give responsibility, real responsibility onto the younger generation. We are led by politicians who don't seem to know how to do this at all, right? Our president ought to have had some inkling of this, but for, for the worldly ambitious, there's no time to pass on the torch and to step aside. Right? We can be blind to our own failures. We can become blind to our own weaknesses, to our diminished capacity because we simply want to stay being the man. Right? But there is a time to diminish. It's a time to fade back. There's a time to allow other better stewards to take charge of the whole. And that, that action takes faith. It takes self-denial. Right? It is difficult, and here John the Baptist is giving us an example of it. Now, at this point, John pivots and goes, goes into the section of, of, of his sermon to, where he speaks of the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at, look at um, verses 31 to 35. I mean, we handle simple, light, fluffy doctrines like where Jesus comes from, his stature, his knowledge, his authority, his his standing with the Father. I mean, John is informing his disciples that their heart is wrong in all of this uh, because of just who Jesus is. If you knew who Jesus is, you wouldn't be fighting for my reputation. That's ridiculous know who Jesus is? Knowing who Jesus is, it is absurd for John to assert his own glory. He is nothing compared with Jesus. He's a mere man, a withering piece of grass, a vapor. Jesus, though, is God. Look at what John says about Jesus here and let it sink in. There is so much here that we could meditate on, that we should meditate on, right? And remember, this is John's response to his disciples, who are jealous for his reputation, who are failing to recognize Jesus, the very Son of God. Right? He is witnessing to his own disciples, pointing them toward Jesus Christ. I mean, don't we spend a lot of t- don't we spend a lot of time talking about ourselves? I and mean, it feels like that's all we do. We talk about ourselves. Don't we spend a lot of energy trying to impress people with what we know or who we know? Don't we spend our energy trying to get people to recognize our glory, however mundane or or unglorious we may really be, right? John the Baptist was not a man like that. As a Christian, he had a boast, but that boast was not in what he had done or even what God had done through him, right? His boast was in This Lamb of God, his boast was in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so from beginning to end, he proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what he did. So as as John points out the glory of Jesus Christ, he's proving himself to be filled with the Spirit. He diminishes, Christ increases. That should be your goal too, to be so filled with the knowledge and the glory of God that you, you can get over yourself. So filled with God's glory that you can stop with the stupid trying to impress people. They're bored with the things you're saying about yourself anyway. It's nauseating. The only one who likes to hear us talk about ourselves is ourselves. But if you're filled with the knowledge and glory of God, then you can get over yourselves. Be so filled with his glory that, that your worship is about him and not about yourself. That your parenting is about him and not about yourself. That your work is about him and not about yourself. That everything you do is about him and not about yourself. It's about his kingdom and not your kingdom. So what does John say about Jesus? What, is, what does he say in this poem to Christ's glory, verses 31 to 35. And, and as, as we go through it, it's your duty to hold to these teachings. These are laid out by Scripture for you. And the first thing is this, Jesus is from heaven. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. In other words, Christ is not a mere man. That's not, that, that's not the teaching of the Christian church. He is not a mere man. He is God. He is the God-man. Many people mistakenly think Jesus was just a man who has had certain peers throughout the ages in human history. They honor him just as they would honor uh, Aristotle or Caesar or Confucius or J.S. Bach or, or Thomas Jefferson, Right? But they do not honor him as God when they bring him down that way. This is the distinction that runs through this whole world and will endure through all eternity. There will be those who will acknowledge that Jesus is God and those who will merely honor him as a historical figure, a mere man. And the latter will be sorely disappointed at their death when they suddenly see Jesus as they should have seen him by faith during their lives. Notice what John brings out of the fact that Jesus is from heaven. That Jesus is from heaven means that, as the text says, he's above all. He is above all. He has authority. He is not like a mere man who may have authority delegated to him from God, like a judge or a police officer or a president or pastor. No, the authority is, is his because he reigns from and is from heaven. This places Jesus above all earthly powers. He is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Notice in the text that John turns to speaking about other members of the Trinity. The Father is mainly mentioned, but the Spirit also. These things were revealed to John the Baptist just as God revealed Christ's identity to Peter when he made that great confession of Christ as the Son of God. So what do we learn about the Father? We learn this, that he supplies the Son with everything the Son teaches. The teaching originates with the Father. The Father passes on what the, what the Father has given to him. The Son passes on what the Father has given to him. This is repeated throughout the Gospels. This is a theme in the Gospel of John. Right? Go to 7.16, 5.19, 14, chapter 8, chapter 12. The same thing is said that Jesus receives from his Father and gives. And so we we learn that Jesus only teaches what is given to him by the Father. We learn that the Father sends the Spirit to those who believe. We learn that the Father loves the Son. We learn that the Father has given all things into his Son's hand. The Father has delegated his rule to his Son. Now that's an amazing thing. Jesus is God the second person of the eternal trinity. As the Westminster Confession puts it, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are equal in power and glory. What one does, what one person of the trinity, all three of the persons of the trinity do. And yet, dear brothers and sisters, there are distinctions between those persons, and those distinctions are based upon an order that does not obliterate or affect or disrupt the equality and unity of the three persons. There's order in equality. They're different, by virtue of them being father, son, and spirit, they have differences that does not obliterate their perfect unity and equality and oneness. The Father has given all things into the hand of His Son. The Son receives and passes those things, the Word, to us. The Son does the will of His Father. The Father commands the Son. The Son submits to the Father. And that does not obliterate their, their happy equality and unity. What is at the core of the relationship between the Father and the Son? It's love. Love is at the core of the relationship between father and son. The father loves the son. The son loves the father. The father is love. The son is love, right? What we witness in Christ's incarnation and eternal relation to the father is the outworking of their being, which is love. It, it's, not even, it's not even right to say that they love one another. It's, it's more right to say that they, they are love. And so get this, this world, all of creation, is a stage in which the love of God is demonstrated. That's what this world is. It's a stage in which God could demonstrate his love. God created a world that we as creatures might, as it were, walk with him in the cool of the garden. Adam and Eve, the first man and woman in history, reveled in that love. They experienced that love. They intimately knew of God's kindness and basked in the love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then that love-saturated world was broken apart, and it was ravaged by sin, Adam's sin. And from that point on, what has marked the relationship between God and man? Hostility. Hostility. Ephesians says that by nature we are children of wrath, that our thoughts of God flow from our alienation and hostility toward him. Our relationship is marked by hatred, and God's wrath abides on us. But we mustn't forget that God's world before man rebelled was a world saturated by God's love. The image of God in man that we are created to image forth God, though broken by sin, still has a sense of that love. Right? It it takes an act of suppression. It takes a thoroughgoing love of sin to force out the sense that this world was made by a loving and powerful God. It takes active suppression. The world, as I said earlier, was created to be a stage upon which God, who is love, loved his image-bearing creatures. That the world is filled with grief and affliction and sin and hatred and violence and warfare is not the last word. The God of love entered into this world by becoming a man and put forth the preeminent example of love in all history, We know love by this that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. Jesus died for sinful people. The Father commanded him to die on that tree for those sinful people. The Son obeyed the Father and died as a sacrifice for you. The command of the Father, the obedience of the Son, was the fruit of their nature as love. And this world, dear brothers and sisters, is destined to be redeemed and become that world of love. Jonathan Edwards describes this world. There are many principles contrary to love that make this world like a terrible sea. Selfishness, envy, revenge, jealousy, Kindred passions keep life on earth in a constant tumult and make it a scene of confusion and uproar where no quiet rest is to be enjoyed except in renouncing this world and looking to another. But oh, what rest there will be in that world which the God of peace and love fills with his own gracious presence and in which the Lamb of God lives and reigns, filling it with the brightest and sweetest beams of his love where there is nothing to disturb or offend And no being or object to be seen that is not surrounded with perfect happiness and sweetness. Where the saints shall find and enjoy all that they love, and so be perfectly satisfied. Where there is no enemy and no enmity, but perfect love in every heart and to every being. Where there is perfect harmony among all the inhabitants, no one envying another. But everyone rejoicing in the happiness of every other. Where all their love is humble and holy and perfectly Christian without the least carnality or impurity. Where love is always mutual and reciprocated to the full. Where there is no hypocrisy or dissembling but perfect simplicity and sincerity. Where there is no treachery or unfaithfulness or inconsistency or jealousy in any form. Where there is no clog or hindrance to the excesses or expressions of love. There's no imprudence or indecency in expressing it and no influence of folly or indiscretion in any word or deed where there is no separation wall, there's no misunderstanding, no strangeness, full acquaintance, perfect intimacy, where there's no division through different opinions or interests. But where all in that glorious and loving society shall be nearly and divinely related and each shall belong to every other and all shall enjoy each other in perfect prosperity and riches and honor without any sickness or grief or persecution or sorrow or any enemy to molest them or any busybody to create jealousy or misunderstanding or mar the perfect and holy and blessed peace that reigns. And all of this in the garden of God In the paradise of love, where everything is filled with love and everything conspires to promote and kindle it, keep up its flame, nothing ever interrupts it, but everything has been fitted by an all-wise God for its full enjoyment under the greatest advantages forever. And all too, where the beauty of the beloved object shall never fade and love shall never grow weary or decay, but the soul shall more and more rejoice in love forever. It's a love fest. I mean, hard-hearted man or woman, why do you go on rejecting that world? Why would you possibly reject that joy? Why would you possibly reject that love of that God you know exists? Will you really go to your grave clinging to your cynical view of the world, rejecting the love of God offered to you in Jesus Christ? Will you go on loving your opinion of the world and rejecting the message of the Son of God who speaks the very word of God. The last verse of John the Baptist's testimony in our passage is for those of you who refuse to believe God is love and the, and the Son of God's incarnation, death, and resurrection are God's kindness to you. The last verse here is for you today. The last verse I hold out to you is the fulcrum upon which your eternal destiny Pivots between eternal life in love or eternal death, in hatred. And that verse says this: "He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Believe in Jesus Christ. Do not repudiate what you know to be true in your heart of hearts. God is love. Do not go on disobeying the Son and instead choosing the paper-thin philosophies of the world that cannot explain why God's covenant love is at the core of everything in this world. Believe in Jesus. That was John the Baptist's word for his own erring disciples. He pointed them toward Jesus. He taught them that the world is God's world, a world in which the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father sweeps through the ages and brings many sons to glory. What an absurdity it would have been for John the Baptist to cling at that point to his own glory when this grand drama was unfolding in time. Will you cling to your own glory as this unfolding drama continues on? No. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. It's very simple. Come to Christ, live for him, honor the Father's love by loving his Son. If not, the wrath of God will abide upon you. Like, that's not a metaphor, folks. Like in time, in history, your flesh will feel heat. If not, the wrath of God, if you reject Christ, the wrath of God will abide on you. You have been warned. You've been warned. Stop loving your sin. Stop suppressing the truth. Step into the love of God. Step into it. The only way is to believe in the Son. Come to Him. He will not reject you. He won't reject you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. You get to hang out with Jesus. You get to hang out with the one who cast the the Milky Way into into the space. You get to dine with him. Come to Jesus.